This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Monday, March 21st, 2022. A brand new week here on the Guy Benson Show. Same host. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you very much for tuning in every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. That's when we air live, and we encourage you to listen live if you can, especially on our great affiliates across the country. Many ways to listen, though, through the Fox News app, the live stream, Fox Nation. You've got options. And also, if you can't listen live, we have a podcast. It is on demand and totally free every day. In fact, seven days a week. GuyBensonShow.com. That is your best resource for all of those needs related to the show, GuyBensonShow.com. I'm the political editor at TownHall.com, also a Fox News contributor. I've got some TV on the schedule this week. We will keep you apprised of that. Also host of this fine program, which is packed today. We'll get to our first guest here in just a moment, but later this hour, Dana Perino will join us of America's Newsroom and The Five. Excited to catch up with Dana. We will also talk with Congresswoman Maria Salazar, Republican of Miami, down in the South Florida region, of course. She was one of those flipped seats recently, and she's trying to hang on to that district in the 2022 midterms. We will also go live to Ukraine with Jeff Paul, our Fox News colleague, get an update from the ground there. And then in our final hour, Senator John Cornyn, Republican of Texas, he is a member of the, among other committees, the Senate Judiciary Committee, which is beginning this week, in fact, right now, the confirmation hearings for Judge Katanji Brown Jackson, who has been nominated to the U.S. Supreme Court by President Biden to succeed Justice Breyer, who will be leaving at the end of this term. And this is day one of those hearings, although it is kind of the Speeches from Senators Day. Almost nothing from the nominee herself. I look at C-SPAN right now. A lot of the news channels are not covering it live wall to wall. We'll see if that changes when there's actual Q&A. But at the moment, it is one of our regular guests on this program, Senator Marsha Blackburn, a Republican of Tennessee who's making her opening remarks. In fact, let's just dip in live on Capitol Hill. This is playing out right now. Without a judicial philosophy, a judge is legally adrift and will be inclined to consider policy rather than law. You once wrote that every judge has, and I quote, personal hidden agendas, end quote, then influence how they decide cases. So I can only wonder, what's your hidden agenda? Is it to let violent criminals, cop killers, and child predators back to the streets? Is it to restrict parental rights and expand government's reach into our schools 
and our All right, so that's Senator Blackburn, Republican of Tennessee, who's giving her opening statement. We were just listening live there for a moment in the hearing room, and Judge Brown Jackson is sitting there with a very placid, neutral look on her face, listening to these senators, and then there will be actual questions put to the nominee starting perhaps later, but certainly tomorrow. And we will ask Senator Cornyn about what some of those lines of inquiry might be when we chat with the Texas senator later on in today's show. We begin, though, with our first guest. Carrie Severino is here, the president of the Judicial Crisis Network, former clerk to Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. And, Carrie, it's great to have you back on the show. Thanks, guys. Great to be here. Before we get to this nomination, I just mentioned there in your intro that you clerked for Justice Thomas. He has been in the hospital the last day or so. My heart skipped a beat yesterday when I saw a tweet come up that he was hospitalized. It seems like it's a flu-like situation, that he's resting comfortably, that he's on the mend. At least that's what the statement from the court said. He's expected to be released from the hospital in coming days. Do you have any update for us on the justice's health? I know uh, we are all rooting very hard for a speedy and full recovery. Yeah, I think that's what we can expect, and I'm, I'm happy to report that he's even in the hospital. He's reading briefs. He's getting keeping up on his work and joking with the staff. That didn't surprise me at all. That that was really how he behaved in chambers a lot too. So that gives me a lot of confidence, knowing that he's really kind of back to his normal self. I think they caught this uh, quickly, and the antibiotics really turned it around. So thank you. Good. Well, that's wonderful news, and. Maybe spare a prayer for Justice Thomas. You have a moment today because just whenever you're in at any age in the hospital, that can be a concerning thing. And he is up there. He's a senior citizen. And for all the reasons you want him to make that full recovery, and it sounds like he's on his way to doing so, which is excellent. That's what we wanted to hear. So, Kerry, maybe just give us a sense at the beginning of this week, what is in store for this confirmation battle. I've predicted that Judge Brown Jackson will be confirmed with 20 or check that 52, 53, maybe votes if I had to guess somewhere in that ballpark. Uh, It seems to me also a prediction that I made when the vacancy first opened that at least relatively speaking, this might be a low octane fight because it's a 6-3 conservative majority. This is one of the progressives leaving the court, being replaced by another progressive. The Democrats have at least a nominal majority in the chamber. Seems like it might be relatively smooth sailing. Is that a fair assessment, or am I missing something? You know, I think the biggest thing that's determining how this fight is going to go is uh, simply the the numbers in the Senate. People like to say things like elections have consequences, and that means the president's the one who who gets to pick who the nominee is, but a huge factor in that is who controls the Senate. And, you know, with Democrats effectively controlling the Senate, it's 50-50, but they have the the tiebreaker vote with the vice president. Um, That really gives them the upper hand. And while Senators Manchin and Sinema and, and, you know, you would like to think several other allegedly moderate Democrats might uh, be willing to stand up to this administration on some issues, judges is not yet proven to be one of them. They voted for every single one of Biden's uh, nominees, which includes some people who are really extreme, people who have questionable uh, qualifications for their positions. So that that is something that really concerns me. And I think that's what gave emboldened the White House really to make the choice they did, because we know that that the president, you know, even after already saying, okay, I'm going to he's going to limit his um, 
the people he's selecting to uh, choose only a black woman, he still had a wide range of types of judges he could have looked at. And by all accounts, he chose the most liberal, most extreme pick that he could find. And uh, so that's what we're seeing simply because they're so confident that they can vote. They will get every single Democrat vote. If they get every single Democrat vote, she's going to be confirmed. So that's that's discouraging. However, um, I do think while I don't think this nomination hearing is going to be the circuit. Well, let me let me just in, uh, let me just jump yeah. in real quick because I just want to comment. I think the likelihood that she will get all 50 Democrats is almost 100 percent. I think the likelihood that she will also get a small handful of Republicans is at least likely. And you mentioned the aphorism, elections have consequences. I would just remind people, if Republicans had not in large numbers stayed home last January in Georgia, if those two Senate seats were still in Republican hands and Mitch McConnell were controlling the calendar, for example, in the U.S. Senate, this could be a very different scenario right now. And the calculus may have been different for Justice Breyer himself, for the president in terms of who he would pick. But both of those seats were lost because a lot of people were told that their votes might not count. So they stayed home. Two Democrats won those seats. And this is one of the resulting consequences. I just wanted to hammer that point home. You were about to say, Carrie, that while it might not be a zoo like we saw for example, during the Kavanaugh mess, which was truly a national disgrace, you think that there at least could be – I was getting a hint here that you think that there might at least be some drama. Why? Uh, yeah, and I think we've seen this previewed in some of the comments today uh, because the Republican senators have, com- have repeatedly been reminding people of, hey, we're not going to go with the smear campaign. We're not going to be trying to mine your you know, 17-year-old life. We're not going to attack you for your religious beliefs like, like they did to Amy Coney Barrett. But – we have a, a duty to look at what the judicial philosophy is. And I, it was very encouraging to hear so many senators go back to that and say, hey, I might have had a nice time t- talking to you in my office. We might be able to connect over a lot of things. I might think you have a lovely family. However, the qu- key question here is, what is your judicial philosophy? And that is really um, concerning, given uh, Judge Jackson's own uh, history, her, her uh, record on the bench, in which she has been reversed at kind of record high levels, but it not, not even just the reversal rate by the appellate courts, because she was a district court judge for most of that time. It's the fact that she was often reversed by judges who are just as liberal as she is, from a, by a, a liberal appeals court, for going beyond her authority to reach out and strike down Trump-era regulations and executive actions. That really concerns me, not knowing the limits of that authority. And then also the fact that in her last confirmation hearing, she refused to say that she had any judicial philosophy. In fact, she said, I don't have a judicial philosophy per se. She said she hadn't had a constitutional case yet as a district court judge, and therefore she just hadn't ever gotten around to developing a theory of how you interpret the Constitution. Well, to my mind, that was really shocking to hear from anyone who'd even just graduated from law school, let alone who'd been already sitting on the federal bench for eight years. But it's one thing for someone to say that when they want to be an appellate court judge. And this was something she said during her appeals court hearing. Um, That's bad enough. Here we're talking about someone who could be sitting on the Supreme Court. She can't just say, well, I'll just follow the president of whatever the Supreme Court tells me how I should interpret this. She's the one who will be interpreting the Constitution, and she's telling us she has no idea how she's going to go about that. 
that's really frightening that, that the senators are now being asked to vote for a complete blank slate here. And we know historically uh, the Democrats don't make errors in their vetting. We know the types of groups that are advocating for her confirmation. These are some of the most extreme liberal dark money groups out there who want to pack the court, who think the court should be their shortcut to getting every Democratic policy enacted by judicial fiat rather than by the electoral process. So that's really frightening. And I hope that they dig into that. And we're getting hints in the opening statements that a lot of these Republican senators in the committee are planning on doing so. You know, I think that we know how she would go about her business as a Supreme Court justice if and when she's confirmed. She'll just she and Justice Sotomayor, for example, will be virtually indistinguishable in their jurisprudence. It'll be, you know, sort of bleeding edge left jurisprudence. And that's what we should expect. Like that's that's sort of what has been previewed. That's the way she was sold to the left. Right. They like her for that reason. You mentioned dark money. I'm glad you brought that up. I don't really care that much about the groups that are backing her, the shadowy, all this stuff that I understand that there are advocacy groups involved in this process. You're the president of one of them. But I do know that the left goes crazy about dark money in this process. Senator Whitehouse, for example, from Rhode Island, this is a hobby horse of his. But apparently there's no objection to dark money when it's left wing dark money. It's how the left operates. Right. Money in politics is bad unless it's our money. I mean, that's that's basically how they view it. Oh, my gosh. And listening to Senator Whitehouse's opening statement was just like a a, a model of gaslighting. I could not believe some of the things that came out of his mouth because he he was saying things like, well, it's such a so refreshing to have someone who was not chosen through a dark money funded turnstile. And I was like, gosh, Uh the only reason she was on anyone's radar was because of the dark money groups putting her there. And he said, well, no, she was chosen through a thorough independent process. You want to know who that thorough independent process is run by? The person in the White House Counsel's Office, in charge of judges, Paige Herwig. It came right from working from for Demand Justice, which is the main dark money group that is advocating for her confirmation. This is no, no, so White, House, White House is a total clown. He's a massive Absolutely. hypocrite. And I mean, it's I almost don't want to waste too much time talking about him because he's he's a ridiculous human being who has absolutely no principles. He just says whatever has to be said. And that's true of a number of the partisans on that committee, I'm afraid. About a minute or two left here, Carrie, if you could just preview a couple of the issues, because I'm glad that the Republicans are saying we're not coming after your personal life. We're not coming after your family or your faith or what you did in high school or college. Let's look at what she's done as an adult in the criminal justice system, on important commissions, as a judge for years. Like that is the body of work that I think requires serious vetting. What are the areas within that career that you think deserve the most scrutiny over the coming days? Yeah, so one of them that we've heard a lot of talk about lately is her pattern of sentencing. So as a judge, when she gets to choose a sentence, and she was on the Sentencing Commission, which helps get to create the guidelines. So she has these guidelines for a particular crime, given the characteristics of the person, and she regularly departs downward and keeps on giving people lower sentences. And this is something that, that has been brought up in the context of of uh, sex crimes, but I think it's going to be something we'll see across her, a, a pattern of her um, career. She also has spent time um, both as a public defender, but then also in her private practice by her own choice, defending uh, terrorists in Guantanamo Bay. I think there's some questions there. There's also uh, some amicus briefs she wrote on behalf of NARAL and other pro-abortion groups that was very dismissive and hostile to uh, pro-life 
sidewalk counselors, and uh, as well as having worked at the Supreme Court during a major abortion case that her boss, Justice Breyer, wrote in and, and sitting on another case that had to do with um, abortion funding regulations in the Trump era. So how she dealt with that area. She has cases that have been hostile to business. And then, as I pointed out, she has these cases, um, particularly dealing with administrative law, which is uh, the most common issue that comes up in the in the district court that she sat on, but where she was particularly hostile to Trump era uh, regulations and executive orders in ways that, that really look more political than judicial. And so she's going to have to answer for that type of pattern in her judging. Yeah. I mean, if they want to be honest, they could just say, look, uh, we figure out a way to get to our preferred outcome and we do it. That's that is what often progressive, quote unquote, justices and judges do. And I think that this woman who is qualified in my mind, no, no doubt about that, uh, that is how she has behaved on the bench so far. It's how she would behave on the U.S. Supreme Court. And she's likely to land there because unless something really big happens, it looks like the Democrats have the math and the math is what matters the most. But we'll be watching all of it this week. Carrie Severino will be watching it extremely closely. President of the Judicial Crisis Network, former clerk to Justice Clarence Thomas, who's convalescing at a hospital and recovering well, she says, which is great news. Carrie, appreciate your time, and I'll be following your tweets and your updates over the course of these next days. Thanks so much. Have a great day. You bet. We're just getting started on The Guy Benson Show, and we'll be right back after this short break. The Guy Benson Show. More next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm Guy Benson and a Fox News alert here on the show. Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson has been sworn in for this hearing. She is now delivering her prepared opening remarks to senators before the Senate Judiciary Committee. Let's listen live to some of this Supreme Court nominee. A public service. After graduating from Howard University, Kataj started out as a police officer, following two of our uncles. After the September 11th attacks on our country, Kataj volunteered for the Army and eventually became an infantry officer serving two tours of duty in the Middle East. Kataj is here today providing his love and support as always. And speaking of unconditional love, I would like to introduce you to my husband of 25 years, Dr. Patrick Jackson. I have no doubt that without him by my side from the very beginning. So there's our first peak listening to this woman who's been nominated for the Supreme Court. She currently sits on the D.C. Circuit. She's introducing herself, laying out her biography. They're doing cutaway shots of her family. They are beaming with pride, a beautiful family. The questions in earnest start. That's the next part of this. And as I said, we'll be following it here on The Guy Benson Show. 
Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Welcome back to the show. I'm Guy Benson. Thanks for being here. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast always free. With us now is Dana Perino, co-anchor of America's Newsroom, co-host of The Five, also a New York Times bestselling author most recently of Everything Will Be Okay, Life Lessons for Young Women from a Former Young Woman, now available in paperback. Dana, great to have you back. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I just want to start with a story that we have been covering for the opening of the show. We dipped in live briefly to Capitol Hill, listening to Judge Brown Jackson give her opening statement in this Supreme Court confirmation battle. Our understanding is the TikTok here is she's going to give this statement that will wrap it for day one. And then the questions from the senators for the nominee start tomorrow. I just wonder Does it feel as strange to you as it does to me, knowing how fraught these events typically are, that this is almost like a a third tier story in Washington right now? Because that's how it feels here, at least. It it does feel like that way to me as well. In fact, as I was off last week having some uh, vacation time, I was getting back in the swing of things over the weekend. And I realized, like, my goodness, I really need to delve a little deeper here into the Supreme Court nominee because I'm not prepared enough. And so I spent um, a lot of the good chunk of the weekend reading about her and her background. And I realized that just because there's a couple of things happening, one, obviously there's a war. Uh, We also have just um, unprecedented in our times uh, inflation that we are trying to manage and, and small business owners and moms and dads and young people and older people are all trying to figure that out. And then the Supreme Court nomination you know, you have a liberal justice replacing uh, a nominee, replacing a liberal justice. So it's not going to change the balance of the court. You know, when Brett Kavanaugh's hearings took place, that was just for all the marbles. And to me, the left went absolutely berserk and inappropriately so. And I still, I mean, I can't believe that my language is so tame talking about that now because at the time I was so upset about how it was all going. Um, but this hearing, I think, will be very interesting. And she's uh, apparently very charming and very wise and an intelligent person who has raised two daughters. And I think some of her parenting comments have been really cute that I've read about in the press. But she has to be pressed on her judicial philosophy and on her record. And so the senators will do that. But I do believe, Guy, that she probably already has enough votes to get confirmed going in. The question was, right. did she get Republican votes? And I think that's unlikely. Yeah, I tend to agree. She might get one or two. Uh, that's my over-under is 52, I would say. Collins Murkowski would be the likeliest candidate. She got three in her previous confirmation for the D.C. Circuit. Of course, this is now the highest court in the land. Different ball game, And it looks like Judge Jackson just wrapped up her comments. And now she is listening to a few remarks from Chairman Dick Durbin, Democrat from Illinois. Dana, you conducted an interview earlier today on America's Newsroom. 
and it was pretty remarkable. It was with this woman from Save Our Allies, an organization that was instrumental in helping get our colleague Benjamin Hall safely out of Ukraine, having been wounded from incoming fire. Of course, we lost two colleagues in that attack in Ukraine. Just tell us about that interview and sort of the behind the scenes story of how many resources were brought to bear in very short order to go and get Benjamin. I thought it was really, really incredible. And we've been, of course, following that story closely here. Well, me too. And it was hard to be away from work last week. Um, I've become to know, I've come to know Benjamin very well. And we had co-anchored a few times when Bill Hammer was away. And I admire his work so much. And we bonded over our dogs, of course. Um, so I was quite devastated. Well, the interesting thing about the interview is that late last night, I found out that I was going to have an interview at 10.50 a.m. with an organization called Save Our Allies, and it would be about um, this organization helping innocent people get out of Ukraine as they did in Afghanistan. I said, okay, great. No problem. So I looked up a little bit. I'm like, okay, this sounds like we're in the organization. Well, I didn't know until um, this morning, around 6.40 in the morning, even earlier because I was on my way in, that this was the organization that helped get Ben out. And even up until 9.30, 45 a.m., I didn't know if I was going to be able to say to her, thank you for helping get Ben out, because they were trying to make sure that all the I's were dotted and T's were crossed before doing mm-hmm. so. And around 10 a.m., I found out that that interview would be very different than what I had prepared, um, because everything had been put into place for me to be able to announce where Ben is um, recovering. And you know, I don't know all the details about how all they got him out, and I think that is because it's so secretive and there are more people to rescue, so they don't want to blow those operations. But it was sure. very special, and I thought she was such a bright, shining light in the world, the way that she described her commitment. And what's interesting, too, is that this organization, SaveOurAllies.org, has a 10-year relationship with Fox News, because Jennifer Griffin, our correspondent at the Pentagon, had been working with her for years to help provide track chairs to mm. our extremely wounded veterans. So she said she just felt a commitment to help Fox as soon as she heard that we needed help. That was just amazing. And all of our prayers here are with Benjamin and his family, his kids, and of course with the families that, that lost loved ones. And it's Sasha and Pierre. It's just absolutely heartbreaking. But if there is a silver lining or a happy side story to something that was just so devastating, this is part of it. And getting some of that information from that interview earlier was pretty remarkable. So I I wanted to touch on it here since we had you. Meanwhile, in that region, the war rages on. There is discussion about the Russians getting even more ruthless. And, you know, it seems like there's no target that they won't bomb schools, hospitals, shopping malls, you name it. If there are people there, civilians there, they're bombing it. There are also hopes on the horizon potentially for the contours of a potential deal where the Kremlin seems to have moved very far off of their initial position, perhaps by necessity, because they have been losing so far. Militarily, It's been pretty humiliating for them in a lot of ways, despite all of the atrocities that they're committing. We've got our president, Joe Biden, heading over to Europe this week. What is your sense inside the White House? This is a really big moment. The stakes are very high. He, of course, will be in some high level meetings 
what is the substantive goal, you think, for this administration out of this trip? Then there's the optics, which also matter, you know, where the president is, what he's doing, where he's appearing. That stuff can send very powerful signals as well. How do you think the White House is approaching those dual goals on this presidential visit? I think it's very good that the president is going because America, if we want to remain the leader of the free world, we have to be there. And I think there's nothing like face-to-face communication. Uh, I think Zoom meetings are great for certain things, but not for this. And these leaders need to get into a room. They need to look into each other's eyes. They need to take the measure of each other and come up with something hopefully creative that can work. I do believe that Zelensky is willing to compromise. He has said so. Putin has said that they're kind of willing to, but not really. I don't believe really that Russia is ready for a truce at this point. I mean, despite huge troop casualties, um, the imminent economic depression that is coming for them, uh, they're not quite ready for it. And I think that you see that because of the way that they're targeting civilians. So I understand the terrible dilemma that the NATO countries are in. Um, But one thing that bothers me, Guy, is I believe in supplying defensive weapons to the Ukrainians. It's just that it seems it's happening so slowly that basically we're giving them enough to defend themselves, but also to continue to lose slowly. Now, maybe we can buy time and maybe something can turn around. And I know there's a lot of people wondering, how is Putin's army? Really, is it this bad? You know, as you judge the kind of information that you're getting out of the region, just from the looks of things, it looks like he certainly didn't accomplish what he thought he would accomplish in the initial phase. The question now is, is there a plan B? And that's something that a New York Times columnist wrote today. And is plan B for Putin a compromise or more evil? Well, I think the answer of more evil is almost always correct uh, when you're trying to surmise what Putin might have in mind. Does his calculation at some point, though, change where he has to do less evil because his hand has been forced? Yeah, I don't know. And there's also speculation. Are they allowing these negotiations to be talked about as a shiny object to buy themselves some time to then regroup, redouble their efforts and inflict yet more evil? That's also something to worry about because the Russian government, the Kremlin, is not to be trusted at all. And there are no easy answers to this. And I think the president's visit, of course, comes at a very significant moment. But who knows? Maybe a breakthrough will be announced by the end of the week or something like that. We all pray something real can happen here to make progress and put an end to the bloodshed. But I think that expectations should be tempered, understanding the Russian vantage point here, which is still extremely brutal. Dana, I want to somewhat change subjects and play a soundbite for you. This was from earlier today. It's now making the rounds. Here's our vice president, Kamala Harris, making some remarks, and uh, she fell in love with a certain turn of phrase. This was cut 29. Listen. The governor and I, and we were all um, doing a tour of the library here and um, talking about the significance of the passage of time, right? The significance of the passage of time. So when you think about it, there is great significance to the passage of time in terms of what we need to do to lay these wires, what we need to do to create these jobs. And there is such great significance to the passage of time when we think about a day in the life of our children. I mean, sometimes repetition is used 
in political speeches strategically. Sometimes someone just says something over and over again, and she was very much enamored with this idea of the significance of the passage of time. People are sort of sharing it and and poking some fun that it was yet another Veep-type moment for her. But it comes on the same day that it's been reported that her national security advisor has resigned and is going to be replaced. And the churn in that office, not just the vice presidential office, but in her offices over the course of her career, is kind of hard to miss, Dana. And I wonder, is there a point in time, speaking of the passage of time, where Democrats say, all right, it might be painful. She might be the heir apparent in a lot of ways. But this is someone that we cannot nominate down the road for the presidency because she just seems to have some really glaring flaws. Where do you come down on that? Well, I'm glad that you played that for me because I'm getting ready to do the five. And somebody said that to me, but in, a, in, like, in text, I didn't hear it. And I thought, is that real? And it turns out, yes, it was real. And, you it's know, real. Why in the world would, <laughs> and why in the world would I have thought otherwise? <laughs> you know, True. I, I mean... Good night, nurse. This is just bad. And I've lost track of the reset of her her office. I mean, we're 14 months into this administration, and I think there's been four resets in her office. I think it's a permanent reset. (laughs) It's like music chairs in there. Look, I think it's a real shame, actually. I'm laughing about it, but it's not funny. Uh, I I wanted her to be really good. You know, I, I wanted the first woman vice president to be tough and strong and maybe not even maybe tough's the wrong word but she just feels like she's floundering and you know in school when somebody didn't know the answer and you felt like you wanted to help out yes i i, I was always that person like i wanted to like whisper the answer to, i bet to you were make it not so uncomfortable anymore <laughs> like that's why passing people, a note when i watch her interview sometimes i'm like okay this is what i would say um but she's in the position, and she's going to be there for a while. I guess we could hope that this new arrangement is is helpful for her. Uh, but it is pretty interesting that right off of the heels of her trip, where she doesn't get good press, once mm-hmm. again, there's a change in the vice president's office. You have to wonder, is it the staff or not? And I, think no, it's I not. mean, it's no, it's not. It's her. Because the arrangement, to use your word, is not the problem here. The problem is the principle, not the arrangement around her. And you can arrange the best people around her if she's not going to know things and synthesize information properly and present well. That is not something that a staff can change or any staff can change, no matter how, no matter how many times you turn people over. And it's, I think, just an ongoing issue plaguing the office of the vice president. Finally, Dana Perino, we mentioned it in your intro your book, New York Times bestseller, Everything Will Be Okay, now out on paperback. If people missed the initial book tour, and uh, I don't know how they could have because you were everywhere, but if they missed it or they kind of were busy at that time, just very briefly, what's the elevator pitch for the paperback edition of Everything Will Be Okay? Well, I added a new chapter about how to manage as best you can in work and in life post-COVID. So that's the first chapter now of the paperback, and it wasn't in the original book. Uh, basically, oh, nice. I want women to stop worrying so much, especially younger women. Um, I want them to embrace the fact that they get to make choices, not that they have to make choices, and to realize that if you were born in America and you are educated and you're a woman in today's workforce, you just have to decide how hard you want to work. And it, it, it is work, and it is hard. 
but that's there's magic in the climb and you don't have to be so consumed with anxiety. And I try to help people figure out how to not be so worried. Dana Perino is co-anchor of America's Newsroom every morning, 9 to 11, with Bill Hemmer, Fox News Channel. Then again at 5 p.m. Eastern, it's The Five. She's gearing up for that coming up in just over an hour. And that book, again, is Everything Will Be Okay, now in paperback from Dana Perino. Dana, always appreciate it. We'll talk again soon. You take care. Bye. Bye. You too. And with that, we will step aside and come right back on the other side of this short break. Guy Benson will be right back. Back here on the Guy Benson Show, on this Iran deal, former Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu put out a video strongly condemning it. Here's part of what he said in Cut 16. The problem with the deal is uh, it's badly constructed from the start. It doesn't say, well, we'll lift sanctions off Iran depending on Iran's change of behavior. It says we'll lift sanctions off Iran depending on a change in the calendar automatically. So Iran can continue its terrorism can continue to gobble up nations in the Middle East, can continue any form of uh, aggressive behavior at once, and it gets uh, these freebies. It gets these billions and billions of dollars of sanctions relief, and it continues effectively to move towards its uh, nuclear arsenal. When people are telling you that this deal is going to prevent Iran from becoming nuclear, they're not telling the truth. The truth is the exact opposite. It paves a path of gold for them to get to a nuclear arsenal. I wish Netanyahu were exaggerating, but he's not. What he said is true. The current prime minister, Naftali Bennett, has also been very critical of the deal. Specifically, the delisting reportedly of the IRGC, the Revolutionary Guard, from the terrorism list. I mean, what an unbelievable concession to the Iranians that has been reportedly embedded into the deal. A majority of Congress appears to be opposed to what is in it, although they haven't seen it yet. Three members of Biden's own negotiating team resigned in protest. They're against it. The previous and current Israeli prime ministers strongly against. And some Arab Gulf states have started to criticize the deal as well, particularly that IRGC piece as well. But you know who loves the deal, reportedly? The Iranians the Russians, and the Chinese. What could possibly go wrong? Next hour of the Guy Benson Show is coming up. We have a congresswoman joining us from Florida. Straight ahead, don't go anywhere. city in the world unconventional talk from a fresh unconventional conservative guy benson show it's our middle hour here on the guy benson show from 3 to 6 p.m eastern time weekdays always appreciate your listenership guy is our website guy our podcast is on demand and free of charge every day if you can't listen when we're on the air. Fox News alert. The Dow sinks today, falling 201 points, closing out at 34,552. Joining me now is Congresswoman Maria Alvira Salazar. She represents Florida's 27th district. She's a Republican. And Congresswoman, it's great to have you back on the show. 
Absolutely. Wonderful to be with you and your audience. I wanted to start with this question because I know this is of great interest to many of your constituents. They're all feeling the pain of inflation across almost everything that they buy. One of the most, I would say, obvious reminders is pain at the pump with gas prices very high. And we're seeing the Biden administration steadfastly refusing to change their position on U.S. energy production. Meanwhile, they're trying to strike a deal with the Iranians, which might lead to the availability of some of that fuel. We know that the president has appealed to the Saudis to ramp up their production. There might be an in-person meeting happening there. And then, even more shocking to many Americans, there have been Biden administration officials working with the regime in Venezuela to try to get them to sell us more of their oil when we could be doing more here at home and we're not. Your reaction to the Biden administration's outreach to Venezuela of all these nations on this front, given the pain that Americans are facing and some of the alternatives that wouldn't involve propping up that regime? Well, I think it's a fantastic question, and the answer is very simple, very deep, and very troubling. Uh, The Biden administration is surrounded, or President Biden is surrounded by advisors who believe that the American exceptionality is bad, that the uh, that the country and its and the history is not noble and that the other regimes venezuela iran cuba nicaragua those are the socialists and the marxists and those are the people who are bringing good things to their i'm putting it in a very simple terms but it's it's very it's very deep in the sense that that is the big threat that this country is facing the Marxism, the wokeness, the progressives. And I'm not talking about the Democrats, because the Democrat and the Republican, these are two honorable parties in the history of our country who have done very good things for our people. It's just those Marxists, or let's call them progressives, or woke, whatever word you want to use, they are Marxists, and they have, and they drank the Kool-Aid. And they are pushing this administration to do things that are completely counter-American. In case in point, what you just enumerated is not it's it's a it's a philosophical and ideological war what we have in this country, and that for me is the big enemy. Is not if we are talking to this country versus the other. Is that this ideology is penetrating media and academia and is changing the minds of the Americans up to now. Now and that is the war that we're encountering. Is a war against ideology, the the Marxist ideology that has penetrated the Democratic Party, and now those um, adepts and those students are in power, specifically around the Biden administration or in the Biden administration around President Biden. What are you hearing about this in your district? Because obviously there's great hostility to the Cuban regime, to the Venezuelan regime in your district. People who have lived through that kind of oppression, don't want to see any steps taken in America in that direction. You know, it's a swing district. It, it goes back and forth sometimes. You, you won it back from the Democrats recently. Is there a top-of-mind concern about those foreign policy issues among your constituents, or does that take sort of a, 
second fiddle or back burner compared to the economic concerns? Or are they are they just uh, uh, totally uh, uh, related? Of course. And you just mentioned it. I am in a district that is full of Democrats. This is a D plus six. At a time, Donna Shalila was the incumbent. But we may be Democrats, we may be Republicans, but we're not socialists. And the Venezuelan Americans and the Nicaraguans Americans and the Cuban Americans and the Central Americans, we know very well what Marxism that has been hidden behind or or under this progressive or woke culture. We know what it means, and it means destruction, means death, and it means exile at the end, it, poverty specifically. So when you tell me about Venezuela, we know what the, what the Maduro, the Chavez regime did to the Venezuelans. Let me just give you a little story here. In 2020, when I was a journalist, and I know that you went to journalism school, so congratulations. Hugo Chavez, (laughs) I interviewed him, and he told me exactly what he was going to do. I went to Caracas, I interviewed him, and he told me that he was a democratic socialist and that he was going to bring socialism to the Venezuelans. Venezuela has the the largest reserves of oil in the world, in the world, more than the Saudis, all right? They're not an island. And on top of that, they had one of the most solid democracies in the Americas. And look, 20 years later, 20 years, the average, Ameri- the average Venezuelan weighs 15 pounds less because of lack of food. Number one, there are 5 million Venezuelans who had to flee anywhere, Colombia, Chile, uh, Spain, Miami, wherever they could find refuge. That's what socialism does to people. And Chavez told me that he was going to do it the right way. What year was that? That interview? That was in 2020. That, That was yesterday. Yesterday. And I repeat, they had oil. It's not that they had coconut trees and beaches. No, they had oil. They had minerals. They had water. They have gold. They have wood. They have everything. They have uranium. That's why the Iranians love the Venezuelan regime. So when you when the Venezuelans hear that the National Security Advisor uh, Juan Gonzalez for Latin America within the National Security Council, he catches a private jet and he goes to Venezuela to talk to Maduro in looking for ways to see if Maduro could sell us heavy oil because now we have the issue with Russian oil. The only thing you can read into that is that this administration or its advisors, all they want to do is that they're trying to find any little tiny excuse to get closer to the Maduro regime because, you know, they're socialists. But not only that, we know that Maduro cannot sell that oil because the oil production industry in Venezuela is in shambles because of Marxism, because of socialism, and because of corruption and because of inaptitude. Not only that, in the State Department, the website, the official website, has a $15 million bounty for Maduro. So picture this. You have the National Security Advisor for Latin America going to talk to the guy who is not really the legitimate president of the country and who has a 50 million tag on his head. Those yeah, are facts. This is not, not analysis. Meanwhile, we're in the middle of a negotiation and a giveaway to another regime in another hemisphere that is listed on that same State Department website as the top funder and state sponsor of terrorism in the world. It just seems like the priorities are so unbelievably out of whack right now. Let's shift to another hemisphere because we're talking about ours, 
But over in Ukraine, there's this war happening. I know that uh, you have clarified your position on the no-fly zone. Just overall, as you watch the suffering of the Ukrainian people, the bravery of the Ukrainian people as they fight back against uh, this, this menace that has invaded their country, what do you believe the United States ought to be doing? I am sick in the stomach with what I'm watching because I belong to the House Foreign Affairs Committee. And what can we do for those people? So we are watching how a whole country is being decimated, and there's nothing we, the United States, there's nothing we're doing. All right, what do you think we should – I understand with the no-fly zone, and I understand that no one wants to go into a war. I do not want to send our boys and girls on the ground to fight anything. But we we have instruments. We had ways to send a very strong message to the Biden to, the Biden administration to Vladimir Putin saying, do not even try it. But we needed to have done that months before when the search, because we knew at one point that Vladimir Putin had 200,000 troops around the Ukrainian border. Right. So at that time, we needed to send that message. And way before, while he was creating that search, we needed to send the message, look, we are NATO, even though even though I understand that Ukraine is not part of NATO and we cannot um, bring up the uh, Article 5. But we could have sent a lot of strong messages, including giving the MIGs. 29 that they're asking for right now, giving them the javelins and the stingers and the S-300 and the S-400. We could have done all that before, all that military equipment, more drones, more raiders, body armors, whatever they needed. And Vladimir Putin would have seen that and would have said, oh, my God, this Ukrainian military is really beefing up. What am I going to do now? Because that is peace through strength. Ronald Reagan. Look, uh, we know, you know, I'm Cuban-American, first generation, proud to, to be the American dream. There is no other country, I, a brown girl from the hood, would have been able to be serving her community in Congress. So that's why I'm in love with the American exceptionality. And based on that, I am telling you that we are still the best country on earth and that that country on earth has a duty, a moral duty to help those who want to be free. And the Ukrainians know very well what the Russians do, just like the Cubans know what the Russians do. Because the, the Russians invaded Cuba silently, they're invading mm. Ukraine vociferously. All right, so what I'm saying is that there is, there is a moral position, and that moral position is, is, is what we needed to have taken, but now is too late. Unless we, and I always... Uh, and I and I, like you said, I have clarified my position, but I think that we should leave the no-fly zone on the table because no-fly zone has been instituted or implanted only three times. It has been put into effect only three times in the history of the world, and those three times, it worked. So when they tell me, well, you know, we're going to engage, what about if Vladimir Putin says, well, maybe I should not fly any more of my planes because now there's a no-fly zone. I don't know. No one knows. But we know that we cannot be telegraphing and saying or telling a dictator, a ruthless dictator, what we're going to do or not do, because we are still the United States. That's where you see the lack of leadership. And you know, and with this I finish because I know I can speak until tomorrow, when the, <laughs> when the big guy, when the good guys blink, 
the bad guys get it. And perfect case in point, 1960, JFK and Fidel Castro. Why the Cuban Missile Crisis? Because JFK blinked in Bay of Pigs. So Fidel said, hey, the Russians, come over here. We can definitely put some, some nuclear weapons on this island. And you know what happened. So you never blink when you're the United States. Congresswoman Maria Elvira Salazar of the 27th Congressional District in Florida, down in the Miami area. Congresswoman, appreciate your time today. Thank you. To you. We will take a quick break. We will be right back. It is The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. I'm Guy Benson. Thanks for tuning in. I want to address something that is happening in the state of Missouri, where there is an open Senate race coming up this year. And one of the leading candidates is a, na- a man named Eric Greitens, who used to be the governor in that state, a Republican. He resigned from the governorship amid multiple scandals. One involved a sexual affair and revenge porn allegations and some Pretty intense stuff on that front. You can look up those details. They are sorted. And then also allegations of corruption and specifically uh, misuse of charity money, a, a donor list from a charity. So there were multiple fronts to that scandal. And in 2018, Greitens, then the governor of Missouri, a Republican, resigned. Here we are four years later, and he wants to make a political comeback, and he wants to be in the United States Senate. Polls have shown that he is the likeliest person to lose the seat for the Republicans. Trafalgar, which is a pollster a lot of Republicans respect, they have him tied in a very red state, whereas the other major Republican candidates are up by 10, 15, 20 points. In hypothetical matchups against Democrats, he has an extra level of toxicity. Greitens does. You know that we do not get involved in primaries here almost ever. And I'm not in the business of endorsing anyone in this race. I don't really have a dog in that fight. What I do think is that Greitens resigned for a reason from the governorship. And it would be crazy for the Republicans to nominate this guy for Senate. I've heard that the Democrats in Missouri are just sitting on so much oppo research on this guy, and they don't want to mention it yet. Just like Todd Akin, who lost to Claire McCaskill, they baited the Republicans, the Democrats did, into picking the most beatable person, held their fire, and then pounced as soon as he was the nominee and beat Todd Akin, and they would try, in this case, with Greitens. And a Greitens nomination would make that far easier This would be a safe seat otherwise. Then there's the morality of it. Is this person someone who is worthy of the office? Which brings us to today's update. His ex-wife has now formally accused him in an affidavit of being abusive toward her and their children during the course of their marriage. And some of the details that she alleges are very disturbing, including abuse against her, like false imprisonment, stealing her phone, like locking her in rooms, getting physically violent toward her and the kids, buying a gun and threatening to kill himself with the gun unless she was publicly supportive of him during the 
previous scandal. And the people who are coming out of the woodwork to call on him to step down or to support his ex-wife are not just a bunch of liberal Democrats. His own former gubernatorial campaign manager is speaking out on his ex-wife's behalf. Some of the other candidates in the race are calling on Greitens to drop out of said race. One of them says he needs to seek professional help. Senator Josh Hawley, who is a conservative Republican, currently, of course, a U.S. senator, formerly AG in that state, he tweeted this an hour ago, quote, if you hit a woman or a child, you belong in handcuffs, not the United States Senate. It's time for Eric Greitens to leave this race. Given his previous scandals and his resignation, now this extremely serious allegation, which again is still an allegation, but you have people who know them very well siding with her, which I think is telling. In light of all of that, this man has no business in the U.S. Senate. That's the moral side of it. On the political side of it, the Republicans cannot afford to put seats on the table in a place like Missouri. And the Democrats are waiting and hoping for Greitens to be the Republican nominee. I hope the people of Missouri are smart enough to avoid that trap. It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. You're listening to a new generation of talk. Guy Benson. The Guy Benson Show rolling on here on this Monday. Thank you so much for tuning in. Just a quick note, we had Congresswoman Maria Salazar on the show at the top of the hour, and she told a story about in her previous career she was a journalist, and she had interviewed Hugo Chavez, and her office just wanted to clarify that she had misstated the year that that interview had taken place. She said it was 2020, which I thought maybe she was talking about Maduro, not Chavez, because Chavez had died during the Obama administration. She had meant the year 2000. And she did talk about 20 years, but she had said 2020. She meant 2000. And they wanted us to correct the record. And I wanted to bring that correction to you here just to make sure we're being as accurate as we can be on the program. In the meantime, this is a tantalizing and fascinating update. This is from a pro-Kremlin tabloid in Russia, they released earlier today a casualty update for Russian soldiers in Ukraine. And people were shocked that this was published at all because the regime at the Kremlin had been, at least at last count, I believe, suggesting that the deaths were still somewhere in the hundreds publicly. And that was widely regarded as a lie. It's what the Russian government does. The Ukrainian estimates of Russian fatalities were much higher. But you could say, well, that's wartime propaganda. It's the information war. What's the true number? Well, we had been updating you with what Western intelligence has assessed. And U.S. intelligence, as of a few days ago, were guessing, based on all of their intel, that Roughly six to 8,000 Russian soldiers had died so far in Ukraine, which was a huge number to begin with. Well, this pro-Kremlin tabloid 
put out a number earlier that the number, according to the Russian Ministry of Defense internally, was 9,861 dead Russians so far and 16,000 plus wounded. That is a massive number. It was quickly pulled down off the Internet when people noticed it. But it kind of aligns with the estimates from U.S. and British intelligence. To put that in perspective, the Red Army, over a decade of war with the Soviets or for the Soviets in Afghanistan, the Red Army lost 15,000 men over 10 years. This would be, what, almost 10,000 in a few weeks based on this information, which is, again, not confirmed, but it has now been wiped away off the Internet. Someone, I'm sure, is having a very bad day in Moscow. With that, let's get to our correspondent here at Fox News, Jeff Paul, who joins us live from Ukraine. Jeff, thanks for joining us. You bet, Guy. How you doing? What can you tell us about what you're seeing on the ground? You're in Kiev, correct? Uh, I'm in Lviv. Oh, got it. Okay, so what are you seeing in the western part of the country? What's the latest? Yeah, it's it's definitely tense here. You know, everyone is trying to defiantly go about their daily lives as normal as possible, but it's just something you can't escape no matter where you are at in in this country right now. In fact, I mean, just today alone, uh, we heard air air raid sirens go off for much of the day, probably five or six times, uh, essentially warning people that there could be danger in the area. Um, Just to the east of here in Kiev, Uh, That's where we were hearing today about a uh, really horrific rocket attack on a shopping center, a mall that was destroyed, uh, took a direct hit, essentially. And according to Ukrainian officials, eight people died there. Russia claims that uh, they were using it as a place to house uh, Ukrainian rockets, but there's no independent reporting or verification that that's necessarily true. In fact, One woman who was talking with reporters today said that her daughter was just working there the night before. And you can imagine as a mom thinking about had it just been the day before, how much different her life would be. I mean, some of these just uh, vignettes and snippets are so harrowing. You're in a relatively safer part of the country, but it's still, as you mentioned, the air raid sirens, the concerns. There have been Russian strikes in the West What is the mood about the upcoming presidential visit from our president, Joe Biden? He's going to be near the border, we think. Their White House saying that they have no plans on the president crossing over into Ukraine, at least at this time. Is this something people are noticing, talking about, or is that sort of an America-centric story that is not top of mind for Ukrainians given all the chaos? I think at this point, any Ukrainian wants any sort of of support from any leader in the West. And I think no one around here would be disappointed if they had learned that President Biden made a visit here. Now, again, I know they're saying there are no plans. It does leave the door cracked open for for possibly possibly something. And and can you imagine what a, a message that would send? I think that would go a long way for the people here who, again, are just looking for any support. I mean, not, you know, they've had foreign leaders visit here in the past. And, you know, certainly this war wasn't going on. It wouldn't be uh, as big of a deal for a a U.S. president to visit here. But uh, the timing of it would be incredible, especially with what's happening in Poland with the refugees, just to be able to stop there, thank the Polish people for what they're doing and then come by here. But 
I guess we'll just have to kind of wait and see what happens. You mentioned that displacement and the number of refugees, just millions of people fleeing out of the country, especially women, children, uh, the elderly. What can you tell us about that flow of humanity out of the cities and towns and homes that they love out of necessity and out of fear for their lives? So there's a couple a couple big numbers that really stick out. The U.N. Uh, is saying that 10 million people have been forced from their homes in Ukraine. Now, that doesn't mean they have left the country, but they're certainly coming west to, to cities like where we are at, Lviv, where it is relatively calm. Beyond that, within that 10 million number, three and a half million have left the country entirely. And that's that's most of the women and children who have left here. We are seeing some women go back after they you know, find places to keep their kids uh, without their family members. But I was just in Poland a few days ago, so I've seen this on both sides. And it's incredibly heartbreaking. You have people who they love their country. They don't want to leave. They know it's not safe to have kids there. So they've got to get out and they got to start over. And just visit any somewhat larger city in Poland. And you walk into a train station and you see moms just with one bag trying to carry as much stuff as they can, trying to juggle three or four kids without their husband or partner, no one no one to help and support them. But then you've got the Polish people coming in and doing as much as they can, whether it's a few days in a shelter or, as I saw with my own eyes, strangers saying, hey, you need a place to stay with you and your kids? Come to my house. We've got plenty of room. And I saw that over and over and over again, people opening up their doors and trying to help their, their neighbor to the east. And I think part of it, guys, is that the history here, you know, it seems ages ago, but Poland, they have a very short memory. They remember what happened during World War II, what their grandparents went through. And, and during that time, no one helped Poland immediately. So I think there's a bit of, of remembering what history, what, what history has shown us, and they don't want it to repeat. Lastly, the issue of resolve and anger among the fighting age population in Ukraine. There has to be a great deal of pride in the the way and the extent to which that the Ukrainians have held off the Russians and, and really devastated them with thousands of losses already, based, uh, allegedly according to the Kremlin itself. And there's probably a sense that they might have to continue that fight for quite some time. What are you hearing from people on that front? Yeah, I mean, when, even when you walk around a city like we're at here in Lviv, you, you see people of all ages, you know, wearing military uniforms, carrying weapons. You know, I mean, I saw a kid today, he couldn't have been older than 16 guy. He, he was a teenager, and he's out here trying to do what he can to help his country. And, um, you know, we, are, we don't see as, as many, you know, people who are wearing the uniform because they're more on the outskirts trying to protect this city. But this is a very, uh, a very prideful country. And you even see some posters up sort of, you know, trying to get people to, to consider joining or doing something more, um, whether it is, you know, helping the people who have been displaced or, or taking up arms and trying to protect their country. Jeff Paul, correspondent at Fox News, live on the ground in Lviv, Ukraine at this hour. I know it's it's late out there and there's a lot going on. We appreciate you carving out some time to inform our listeners about what you're seeing. Thank you very much, Jeff, and, and please stay safe. Anytime, Guy. Thank you. So that's uh, Jeff Paul over in Ukraine. I just want to come back to this story that I was addressing right before we were able to get him live on the line. The fact that 
U.S. intelligence believes that Russians have lost 7,000 troops is remarkable. The fact that a higher number leaked from the Kremlin, from one of their friendly news sources before getting quickly yanked down, almost you know, 9,900, that is not necessarily something that will keep Vladimir Putin up at night. I don't think he cares at all about the lives lost or the pain caused. That's not the type of person he is. But it is an absolute humiliation for him and for the Russians. And it's not just the Ukrainian government putting out numbers. Now it looks like an accidental leak from the Russians themselves. Buttressing the estimates from the West, that has to be a big morale boost for the people of Ukraine, the people who are engaged in this fighting. They are absolutely making devastating and, uh, I would say, hurting the Russians in a way that I think most people were not expecting at this stage. And they are inflicting a great deal of death and destruction on their invading enemy. And the thing is, Putin might not care in his soul about that, but he'll have to care because of the numbers game at some point. They don't have a bottomless pit of a, you know, a red army from the Soviet era to just, you know, have wave after wave after wave of people. The Russians back at home, there's a lot of people already very upset about this. There's a lot of people still in denial based on the government's lies about what's happening there. If more of this starts to come out about how many Russian boys are getting killed and wounded in Ukraine, that pressure will grow worse internally, in addition to the Ukrainians still trying to press whatever advantage they might have on the ground in their home territory. So there were some rumblings of both parties inching closer to a potential peace deal. The Russians have made their demands. They're a far ways off from where the demands were early on, which was a total victory for us. You're going to lose. We're going to take out your leadership and denazify the country like all this uh, totally ludicrous chest thumping. And they expected, I think, a quick and easy victory. Now that that has not occurred and they know what the actual numbers are when it comes to casualties, the Russian position reportedly is softening and maybe the way that a deal might come to pass is starting to look a little bit clearer. But the sticking point still seems to be, and I think it's a fair sticking point, do you want to reward the Russians with anything? If they're on the track to a humiliating, comprehensive defeat, do you want to push for a cessation of hostilities and reward them with territory or concessions? The flip side is, do you want the bloodshed to continue if they're not necessarily guaranteed to lose? And if the pain is going to continue in something of a stalemate with civilians being bombed indefinitely, are there things that Zelensky would be willing to do? And he's already indicated some willingness to compromise that would be acceptable enough to put an end to this. And I mean, those are questions that I don't have good answers to. You can hope for something. You can pray for something. But that is the latest out of Ukraine, and we do appreciate Jeff Paul making some time for us here on the program. Let's quickly break and come right back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Back to American politics and uh, some cultural battles here at home when we come back. 
Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. It's the Guy Benson Show. On Friday, we talked a little bit about this huge controversy in the NCAA and this swimmer, Leah Thomas, who won the NCAA championship in women's swimming. And Leah Thomas competed for three seasons as a male on the men's team and then transitioned and has just been dominant. And it's sort of amazing when you hear some of the radical activists, they actually dispute that there is an advantage, an intrinsic physical advantage for someone like Leah Thomas, who, by the way, has not even come close to completing the process of a full transition. Even if she had, there would still be, I would say, biological advantages. But that's not the case here. The NCAA is going to change the policy. But there was one, you know, blue checkmark trans activist saying so many of these men who are so convinced that being an assigned male at birth gives trans women a natural advantage in sports are the same men who are convinced they could beat Serena Williams in tennis. And this got this went super viral. A lot of woke people were retweeting that. Oh, what a great point. Look, I know for a fact if I played Serena Williams in tennis, I would get absolutely destroyed because she's a professional, amazing tennis player, and I am not a very good athlete. But that's not the comparison. And this is where Twitter, you occasionally learn something on that hellscape of a site. Someone responded to that tweet with this little piece of history that I never knew before. Did you know that back in 1998, Venus and Serena Williams claimed that they could beat any male tennis player in the world ranked outside the top 200. So they were conceding the elite men in their sport they couldn't beat. But outside the ranking of top 200, they were confident that they could beat any of those men. So they put that gauntlet out there. They threw down that challenge. And a man named Karsten Bratch, who was at the time ranked 203rd in the world in men's tennis, accepted the challenge. So he played Serena, then he played Venus. They had said that they believed they could beat any man who was not in the top 200. He was number 203 in the world, and he crushed them both. He defeated Serena 6-1 to and Venus 6-2. to It wasn't close. There is obviously a difference. People denying that are denying basic reality. Serena Williams, by the way, later on in later years was quoted as saying that men's and women's uh, men's and women's tennis are not the same sport and that she would get massacred playing against. I believe it was Andy Murray at the time was near the top. She's like, it's not the same sport that would not be close to a fair fight. That should be obvious. But apparently we need to state the obvious. Increasingly in our society, because a lot of people want to reject it and accuse others of being bigots simply for noticing the reality and saying so out loud. And we can do that without being mean-spirited or nasty towards anyone. But that little example, I think, illustrates the point that there was a young woman who was denied a spot in the finals by Leah Thomas. She was one slot away. She's a swimmer at Virginia Tech. She wrote a letter to the NCAA saying, this is not fair. I was robbed of that slot. 
And honestly, it's hard to argue with her. All right, another hour, final hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up. Senator John Cornyn of the Judiciary Committee, just back from Eastern Europe. He joins us next. It's the Guy Benson Show. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's our final hour on this Monday. Thank you for tuning in every weekday, 3 to 6 Eastern and around the clock at GuyBensonShow.com. There's a podcast option. We, of course, recommend listening live. And for all of that information, GuyBensonShow.com is your one-stop shop. And the happy hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is terrific. We just got our new shipment at the house yesterday. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can find out where it's sold near you. They're expanding, as we've been mentioning. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only, please. Joining us now is U.S. Senator John Cornyn, Republican of Texas. He serves on a series of influential committees, including, very relevant today, the Senate Judiciary Committee. And, Senator, thank you so much for making some time for us. Great to be with you again, D.I. Let's start with the hearings on Capitol Hill. We know that today is sort of the warm-up act, sort of the appetizer, where a lot of the senators come out and make opening statements, and they sort of speak at the nominee. We will start to hear more from the nominee as the week unfolds. I just wonder, to start, what is the tone that Senate Republicans, your colleagues on your side of the aisle, are trying to set for this hearing and maybe contrast that tone with what we have seen from the Democrats in recent years when there's a Republican nominee before them? Well, Guy, this is my eighth Supreme Court nomination uh, confirmation hearing, and I've seen the good, bad, and the ugly. And uh, certainly when you think about ugly confirmation hearings, you can't help but think about the Kavanaugh hearing, which was an ugly circus, Um, personal tax perjury lobbed against the nominee. Uh, Democrats seem desperate to do anything and everything by hook or crook to defeat the nomination and and were unsuccessful. Uh, By contrast, we promised Judge Jackson a respectful hearing, not that we won't ask tough questions. We will. And particularly having to do with her judicial philosophy. This was something that um, she refused to answer during her Court of Appeals nomination hearing. Uh, Perhaps she wanted to maintain her flexibility should uh, she get nominated to the Supreme Court. But uh, we're going to we're going to ask her tough questions about that, whether judges should be lifetime appointed um, uh, legislators wearing black robes or whether they should uh, basically play in their lane, uh, a limited but important role of interpreting the Constitution and laws by individual cases rather than broad Uh, broad policy pronouncements. And then, of course, the issue of crime, which is very much on everybody's mind these days with the huge spike in violent crime around the country. And uh, a lot of this, I think, unfortunately, precipitated by uh, movements that uh, like defunding the police, attacks against law enforcement, uh, the Ferguson effect, as uh, Director James Comey once called it. Uh, so those are the, some of the areas that uh, I think you'll, you'll hear a lot more about in the next day or two. 
You know, Senator, it strikes me as very bizarre and kind of an intense form of gaslighting to see Democrats on your committee and also their allies in the press sort of preemptively pronouncing themselves aghast by the types of questions that are going to be asked or might be asked of this nominee. There was a column in the Post, how low will these Republicans go? It's like they have no memory whatsoever or hope no one else has any memory of the way they've comported themselves during hearings. I mean, scraping the bottom of the barrel with personal attacks, but then trying in this case to make it seem as though questions about this judge's history on the bench, nothing about her childhood, nothing about her party habits in high school or college, nothing about you know her personal life, her decisions that she's made on the bench, her role on important commissions, her role in the criminal justice system. That seems to me to be the definition of fair game, what should be examined very carefully. But they're trying to delegitimize those questions out of the gate. It seems like no questions are acceptable when it comes to their side's nominees, whereas everything is acceptable because, you know, the ends justify the means when it's a conservative nominee. Does that sound like a dynamic that might be familiar to you? Yeah, that's it's the old double standard, and uh, it's alive and well, of course, cheered on by the members of the mainstream media. And you'll recall that any questions at all will, uh, in all likelihood, ultimately at some point, uh, be labeled racist because of the race of the nominee. Uh, or sexist, or credit, both. I have, I, to, our, to our credit, I asked the judge in her Court of Appeals hearing, confirmation hearing, I said, what part does your race play in the way you perform your duties as a judge? And to her credit, she said, none at all. Uh, but you wouldn't know that from uh, from the cheerleading and the uh, double standard, which, as you point out, has so clearly uh, characterized these hearings. And just one more point on that note, and we made it a few weeks ago after Judge Brown Jackson was nominated. Joe Biden, back when he was a senator and not the president, obviously, he promised in advance preemptively to lead a filibuster against Janice Rogers Brown, who was a judge from California, if President George W. Bush had nominated her to the U.S. Supreme Court because, he would argue, and did at the time, her views were out of the mainstream. Now, you can quibble with that. I certainly would. But they were making it about judicial philosophy. But she was a black woman, Janice Rogers Brown. If that's the standard, I think it would be extra cynical for them to say anything that might cause any political fallout or damage or put any heat on this nominee by definition has to be sexist or racist. I mean, that's not the way they were going to treat a woman of color when it was a Republican president who might hypothetically nominate that person for the high court. I just don't see, aside from pure cynicism and double standards, how they can say what they were doing and promising to do in the case of Janice Rogers Brown is fine. But anything that Republicans might do this week is you know, evidence of sexism and or racism. Well, I think I think for the for the left, they are so desperate to have a Supreme Court that will serve as an alternative branch of the legislature and that will make policies uh, that they like um, results oriented decision making. You know, if you can't win an election, if you can't win a vote in Congress, uh, there's always the courts, I think, is the attitude of the left. And so they view the left as a as a as a last resort. 
uh, of policymaking in in, the, in their favor. That's why they're so desperate uh, to see uh, people confirmed who uh, have this idea of a quote living constitution. In other words, it's their own ideas of fairness and uh, what the law should be, not what the law is that should govern. Uh, there's a very distinct difference. But I think the, I think the, uh, you know, the, the hypocrisy associated with, as you point out, Janice Rogers Brown, which was who was nominated uh, by a Republican, uh, and the fact that Joe Biden led the filibuster, uh, she likely would have been eligible or likely nominated to the U.S. Supreme Court had she been confirmed at the time. But um, because of Joe Biden's filibuster, because of the hypocrisy of the left, uh, she was denied that opportunity. So now there's yeah, they were they were filibustering. Yeah, they were filibustering a black woman at the time, and now they're arguing that the filibuster is a racist tool and a relic of the Jim Crow era. But not when they use the filibuster, which they did just recently, for example, on Russia sanctions. So that's a whole separate issue. Last thing on the SCOTUS uh, battle here, Senator Cornyn. Do you expect this nominee to actually give an answer on court packing? Because Justice Ginsburg was an outspoken opponent of court packing. Justice Breyer, who's outgoing, has been an outspoken opponent of the radical idea of court packing. Do you think this judge will or at least should take a position on that question? Absolutely. She's got nowhere to hide. As you point out, Justice Breyer, Justice Ginsburg both condemned it because it would politicize the court. And uh, it's not a case that would come before the court, so she can't dodge it on that basis. So we're going to insist upon an answer to that question. You have just recently returned, along with a group of your colleagues from both sides of the aisle, a trip to Eastern Europe, Poland, and I believe you were also in Germany. What did you learn on that trip? What did you glean from those conversations vis-a-vis the war in Ukraine and what we are doing and maybe what we ought to be doing as Americans? Well, first of all, there's a grave humanitarian crisis. Uh, We went to a refugee camp or relocation facility in Poland right right on the border with Ukraine. Millions of people are fleeing uh, this unprovoked aggression by Vladimir Putin. Men uh, of uh, elderly men and uh, children and uh, and women are leaving. All men of uh, who can pick up a Kalashnikov and who can defend their country are going back the other way into the Ukraine to do exactly that. But it's a terrible humanitarian crisis. Our friends, the Polish people, are taking Ukrainians into their home uh, in a in a in a really uh, inspirational sort of way. And it's um, it's it's uh, it's tragic. On the other hand, you know, we we're the Ukrainians say they need more of what we have been sending them in terms of the ability to defend themselves. Nobody expected, especially Vladimir Putin, this war to go this long. And so they are uh, they need to have replenished the, the defensive weapons they've been using so well to defend their homeland. But everybody knows that now that Putin has doubled down and he's essentially laying siege to uh, Ukraine and Ukrainian cities and promised to flatten them and kill everybody in them. So this is not the uh, end of this story. Unfortunately, I think it's still we're still at the beginning phases of this unprovoked and illegal uh, aggression into Ukraine. So we need to keep up our support, both for humanitarian and military supplies. Did you get any insight on this issue of the MiGs, the fighter jets that the Poles want to send the Ukrainians 
but the Biden administration doesn't want to facilitate that transfer. It seems like those are really useful weapons that can be used defensively by the Ukrainians that are still out of the fight right now. What are you hearing about that? Well, unfortunately, this was an unprovoked error when uh, Secretary Blinken said, sure, we'll get those MiGs right over to Ukraine. And then the next day, the announcement was made that 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 transfer would not uh, take place. Uh, I think the word is they no longer found that tenable uh, was the vague reason given. But unfortunately, now the Russians have changed their tactics. They're largely uh, firing long-range missiles and weapons from uh, Russian airspace so as to avoid the stingers uh, that we've already provided the uh, Ukrainians and which they are using to good effect. So while the Ukrainian airspace has largely been uh, controlled by uh, the Ukrainians and not the Russians. Uh, the Russians have found a workaround and using that workaround, making the, the to transfer those MiGs less, uh, less necessary uh, to defend Ukraine, unfortunately. Finally, Senator Cornyn, on Iran, we are still, we being the Biden administration, still negotiating with the Iranians through the Russians, and I guess the Chinese have been a part of this as well, to strike a new nuclear accord the reports about what would be in that agreement are just appalling in terms of the giveaway to the Iranians and also the Russians, frankly, but especially the Iranians in exchange for almost nothing. Is there any way to stop the implementation of what is rumored to be such a bad deal that three members of Biden's own team resigned in protest rather than have their names attached to this process? Is there anything Congress can do beyond making the case loudly that it's a terrible idea and that it would be reversed under another administration if a Republican were to win. Uh, can there be votes forced on Capitol Hill? Would those votes be binding? Yeah, you'll remember, Guy, this happened during the original uh, joint uh, uh, compromise, uh, This uh, the original Iranian deal, I think, in the 2015 time frame. Um, joint compromise plan of action, comprehensive plan of action, it's called. So um, I think the Biden administration has demonstrated that it's probably the, the, the weakest negotiators we've ever had on behalf of the United States. Obviously, the same time we are fighting an illegal war of aggression uh, by supporting uh, the Ukrainians and defending our NATO allies, uh, they are negotiating with the Russians on whether or not, or I should say when, the Iranians will get access to nuclear weapons. That's the last thing in the world that we should be uh, doing. And as part of the lifting of sanctions, they intend to release sanctions on Iranian oil sales. And, of course, they, have, they are, they're find themselves in a very bad situation, having uh, basically suppressed American domestic production while relying more and more on Russian and Saudi Arabian and now Iranian oil. So uh, there'll be more to say on this, but unfortunately, unless they present it to Congress as a as a treaty, uh, there's not much way we can stop it for now. But except to point out that this will not survive the past the Biden administration. Yep, it would not be an American foreign policy deal. It would be a President Biden foreign policy deal, which is what happened under Obama, and that allowed that dynamic allowed President Trump, I think, correctly to pull us out of that terrible deal. And this one is worse, and it would not prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon, which must be said over and over again. Senator John Cornyn, Republican of Texas, I know you've got an extremely busy week on your plate, and so we are very grateful that you took some time for us here. We always appreciate it. Thanks, Guy. Good to be with you. 
Senator John Cornyn, on The Guy Benson Show. And our happy hour continues after this break. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. And we want to talk about the happiest place on earth in this happy hour. This is very interesting. Christine flagged this. It's from WPG Media. And it's a little piece of history when it comes to Americana and Disney. The story says the year was 1963. Disneyland had been open for about eight years at the time. And Walt Disney was starting to look to open a second Disney theme park. And there was a debate within the company, where should we look? And they considered a whole range of options. Obviously, the final answer was Disney World in Orlando, Florida. And there's all sorts of stories about how they were able to do that quietly, obtaining land through sort of shell corporations or or not directly through the Disney brand so people didn't know what was coming. They were kind of stealthy about it. But the interesting fact here is the very first place that they reportedly considered for an East Coast version of Disney was – New Jersey. And so our own Quiet Wyatt is a huge Disney fan. He's kind of a fanatic. And he also loves the great state of New Jersey, which is where he hails from. And Wyatt, I feel like you must have some thoughts on this. Yeah. I mean, when Christine sent this article, I've heard of this before, but it never was really in a serious consideration just because of the weather. I mean, you couldn't have a park that would have to be shoveled by snow. So, and just the the weather in general. I mean, right now, I just looked, it is 80 degrees in Florida, in Orlando right now. And in New Jersey, I don't even know what it is, but I know it's not 80 degrees. So the the main factor why the park was built in Florida and instead of anywhere else uh, north was because of the weather. Yeah, which makes perfect sense. And the land. Because you want to be able to make money and have an operational park basically year-round if you can. That is not going to really be the case. It would have to be seasonal if you're in a place where there are, heavy or cold winters with snow and that kind of thing. So they stuck with Central Florida. But New Jersey was at least under discussion. It was the first place they looked, went in another direction. I am personally glad that they did because I'm convinced that if Disney World had been in New Jersey, Quiet Wyatt would not be working on this show. He would be a manager already at Disney World New Jersey. There's no question in my mind. So we're glad that we have him here, Disney down in Florida, although they're having a battle right now with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, although I think he's going to win that fight. All right, we got to take a quick break. We're going to come back with more of the happy hour next. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Happy hour on this Monday, brand new week here on the program. Thanks so much for listening. GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast. Earlier today, we caught up with our friend and our colleague, Dana Perino, co-anchor of America's Newsroom, also co-host of The Five, very busy woman. She's also a New York Times bestselling author, most recently, of Everything Will Be Okay, Life Lessons for Young Women, that is now available on paperback. Here's part of my discussion with Dana earlier. What is the substantive goal, you think, for this administration out of this trip? Then there's the optics, which also matter, you know, where the president is, what he's doing, where he's appearing. That stuff can send very powerful signals as well. How do you think the White House is approaching those dual goals on this presidential visit? I think it's very good that the president is going because America, if we want to remain the leader of the free world, we have to be there. 
And I think there's nothing like face-to-face communication. Uh, I think Zoom meetings are great for certain things, but not for this. And these leaders need to get into a room. They need to look into each other's eyes. They need to take the measure of each other and come up with something hopefully creative that can work. I do believe that Zelensky is willing to compromise. He has said so. Putin has said that they're kind of willing to, but not really. I don't believe really that Russia is ready for a truce at this point. I mean, despite huge troop casualties, um, the imminent economic depression that is coming for them, uh, they're not quite ready for it. And I think that you see that because of the way that they're targeting civilians. So I understand the terrible dilemma that the NATO countries are in. Um, But one thing that bothers me, Guy, is I believe in supplying defensive weapons to the Ukrainians. It's just that it seems it's happening so slowly that basically we're giving them enough to defend themselves, but also to continue to lose slowly. Now, maybe we can buy time and maybe something can turn around. And I know there's a lot of people wondering, how is Putin's army? Really, is it this bad? You know, as you judge the kind of information that you're getting out of the region, just from the looks of things, it looks like he certainly didn't accomplish what he thought he would accomplish in the initial phase. The question now is, is there a plan B? And that's something that a New York Times columnist wrote today. And is plan B for Putin a compromise or more evil? Well, I think the answer of more evil is almost always correct. Uh, when you're trying to surmise what Putin might have in mind, does his calculation at some point, though, change where he has to do less evil because his hand has been forced? Yeah, I don't know. And there's also speculation. Are they allowing these negotiations to be talked about as a shiny object to buy themselves some time to then regroup, redouble their efforts and inflict yet more evil? That's also something to worry about because the Russian government, the Kremlin, is not to be trusted at all. And there are no easy answers to this. And I think the president's visit, of course, comes at a very significant moment. But who knows? Maybe a breakthrough will be announced by the end of the week or something like that. We all pray something real can happen here to make progress and put an end to the bloodshed. But I think that expectations should be tempered, understanding the Russian vantage point here, which is still extremely brutal. Dana, I want to somewhat change subjects and play a soundbite for you. This was from earlier today. It's now making the rounds. Here's our vice president, Kamala Harris, making some remarks, and uh, she fell in love with a certain turn of phrase. This was cut 29. Listen. The governor and I, and we were all um, doing a tour of the library here and um, talking about the significance of the passage of time, right? The significance of the passage of time. So when you think about it, there is great significance to the passage of time in terms of what we need to do to lay these wires, what we need to do to create these jobs. And there is such great significance to the passage of time when we think about a day in the life of our children. I mean, sometimes repetition is used in political speeches strategically. Sometimes someone just says something over and over again, and she was very much enamored with this idea of the significance of the passage of time. People are sort of sharing it and and poking some fun that it was yet another Veep-type moment for her. But it comes on the same day that it's been reported that her national security advisor has resigned and is going to be replaced. And the churn in that office 
not just the vice presidential office, but in her offices over the course of her career, is kind of hard to miss, Dana. And I wonder, is there a point in time, speaking of the passage of time, where Democrats say, all right, it might be painful. She might be the heir apparent in a lot of ways, but this is someone that we cannot nominate down the road for the presidency because she just seems to have some really glaring flaws. Where do you come down on that? Well, I'm glad that you played that for me because I'm getting ready to do the five. And somebody said that to me, but in, a, in, like, in text, I didn't hear it. And I thought, is that real? And it turns out, yes, it was real. And, it's know, real. Why in the world would, <laughs> and why in the world would I have thought otherwise? <laughs> you know, True. I, I mean, good night, nurse. This is just bad. And I've lost track of the reset of, of, her, of her office. I mean, we're 14 months into this administration, and I think there's been four resets in her office. Well, I think it's a permanent reset. <laughs> it's like musical right? chairs in there. Look, I think I, it's a real shame, actually. I'm laughing about it, but it's not funny. Uh, I I wanted her to be really good. You know, I, I wanted the first woman vice president to be tough and strong and maybe not even just maybe tough is the wrong word, but she just feels like she's floundering. That full conversation with the great and lovely Dana Perino, available at GuyBensonShow.com. Also part of the free podcast every day, the entire show on demand for free. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, it was birthday weekend for Dan, and also a food story that caught our attention. We love a good food story. We'll get to it next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on today's Guy Benson Show. Glad you're here. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is always free and growing. Thanks to all of you. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you might get your podcasts, we are there on demand, no charge. It was Dan's birthday over the weekend, and really we gave him the greatest gift he could possibly ask for on Friday in the home stretch, where he got to ask a bunch of weird questions based on the very strange inside jokes and references that we make during the home stretch and we gave a pretty comprehensive primer on the nonsense so he's now fully caught up that had to have been very satisfying for dan i'm speaking on his behalf here i'm not going to actually ask if that's true but he had some other plans as well that was not the entire birthday celebration and that included dan what a, a dinner saturday do you have a nice birthday weekend Yes, it was fantastic, and it also coincided with March Madness, which I do love. So I was watching a ton of college basketball, which was amazing, and then had a lovely dinner Saturday. Um, we did an earlier dinner, which we talked about on a home stretch, I believe, recently. We did a 6 p.m. dinner, which was nice. Uh, but my team, uh, Providence, was playing at the time, so we sat at the bar. I had a nice steak and watched my team win by almost 30 points. Uh, that sounds actually like perfection. Yeah, it was quite honestly. amazing. Now, have you filled out a bracket? I did. It was horrible. I did two, and they're both like the worst I've ever done in my entire oh, they life. Just, did you have like Kentucky or you know Wisconsin I did. or Iowa? All of the above, actually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that'll do it. I just got so swamped and busy this year that I didn't fill out a bracket. I'm still watching the tournament. I'm still following the big developments. I watched quite a few of the games yesterday, but not 
with the same degree of rooting interest if I had a bracket. Whereas Adam, who's not a big sports fan, he has like five brackets because he entered various bracket contests with his fraternity brothers back from school. And then there's like a neighborhood one with the dads in the neighborhood. So he is actually in some ways following it more closely than I am. Also, his alma mater, Colorado State, was in the tournament. They lost, I think, in their first game. Unlike mine, which has only been to the tournament once ever five years ago. And we will always cling on to that season. And hopefully we'll do it again, but uh, hasn't been going great. So you had a good birthday weekend. We were trying to figure out, and this is typical over the weekend, we won't really do our group text as intensely here at the show. Just some healthy distance as we're all enjoying our weekends. But if there's a story that's really big or a reference that's significant or a possible home stretch, sometimes we will ping the rest of the group just to have it and put it sort of in the hopper for consideration. And this one made the cut because it's a food-related story and we love food-related stories here. It was from the Wall Street Journal, so you can guess who pitched it. But the headline is, Late-night diners mourn the loss of late-night diners. So diners as in people and then diners as in establishments. And I think this was also very much in our wheelhouse because the late-night diner is especially big in New Jersey. Not exclusively. In fact, there was a Greek diner I would go to late at night when I was in college out in Chicago. But diners are a big, big deal in Jersey in particular. So we got talking about it a little bit. And producer Christine, of course, had her own spin on this, which had to do with perhaps overindulgence of mama's juice. And you were concerned about this, Christine, because this was a staple of your youth and perhaps your present? Not present. I'm an adult now. I just drink at home a lot. Um, I I mean, going to the diner, for especially a, a, a gal in Jersey in her 20s, my friends and I, you know, you go to the club or the bar, and then after, you know, the sober friend drives you to the diner, and then you try to sober yourself up before you go home. So the late-night meal, I mean, yeah, mm. yeah it's, a, it's a staple. Diners are great because the menus often are expansive. There are so many things that you can order on a diner menu. And the, the real hook to the story is the pandemic. A lot of the late-night hours were cut due to COVID, and they have not returned. And so options that people would have late into the night or even 24-7, many of those food options are no longer available to them. So someone, I guess, decided to go out and write this story and interview people at diners and people who would frequent diners, patrons, and that sort of thing. The thing that's strange, I would say, about my diner eating habits is that I generally don't like breakfast, like at all. I don't eat breakfast. In fact, the other day we were with friends and one of them went out to get coffee and brought back a bunch of breakfast sandwiches that had been freshly made. And I just sort of eh, took a pass. I just had something instead. Breakfast is not my favorite meal. Breakfast, breakfast foods are not my favorite foods. And I've said this before, and it's one of my worst takes, according to many of you, even though it's correct. I genuinely detest the pancake family of foods, which includes waffles, French toast. I cannot stand it. I call it warm 
sugar bread, like warm, wet sugar bread. I have no interest in it. And if I'm going to do breakfast, as I have stated before, I do like a savory breakfast, specifically an omelet. An omelet, maybe with a side of fruit, call it a day. There's something about going into a diner that makes me feel almost compelled to order breakfast. Like they'll have a massive menu of sandwiches and burgers and any number of entrees, right, ranging from like lobster to shepherd's pie to steak. Like they'll make everything, fried shrimp. It's, it's very eclectic. Let's put it that way. But whether it's actually brunch time or whether it's much later in the day or 1.30 in the morning, I, I just feel like the correct order for me is an omelet. I almost feel like I am more inclined to get a breakfast like omelet late at night than I am in the morning. I might like just skip the meal altogether in the morning. I know that's not supposed to be good for you. Breakfast, most important meal, blah, blah, blah. I've never believed that. I've never lived that in my life. That's not my truth. Okay, that's not my lived experience. But late night diner equals omelet. That's just my go-to. Christine, what would you typically order? Well, I just have to say I've actually witnessed you late night ordering an omelet when we were in Florida for the Patriot Awards. Do you remember? I do remember, yes. And other people were ordering all sorts of other things, salads, cocktails. I I had an omelet. At well, I mean, you did have a cocktail, midnight. too. I, I had it. Yeah, it's a classic pairing. <laughs> I believe it was a margarita yes. and an omelet. But it was Who funny could argue with that? Well, we were all thinking about, you know, dinner options, and you just closed your menu and you said, you know what? I'm having an omelet with my margarita. And I think I actually brought some people with me. Yes, you did. You did. Some people heard me say omelet, and it just started spreading like, wild. you know, I'm a, I'm a trendsetter. I'm a, I'm a leader. I'm a leader of people. I, I understand it, as I told you. I, I'm a influencer of sorts, so I get it. Wyatt, are you a late-night diner person? Not a late-night diner person. Well, you're not a late-night person. Yeah. I mean, it depends. But I would have to say I am a breakfast person, but I don't think I normally have time to eat breakfast on the weekdays, but on the weekends, I'm always down for a good brunch. And talking about all this food just reminds me of going on a road trip and stopping at a Cracker Barrel because that is where you get a good, good breakfast. Although at Cracker Barrel, I don't get breakfast. At Cracker Barrel, I get one of the elaborate meals with, like, all these sides and stuff, and it's so salty, and there's just gravy everywhere, and you know it's not good for you, but it's also delicious, and it's always predictable, and every single one looks exactly the same, like down to the little game that they put on the table to jump over the sticks. I'm a Cracker Barrel person only on long road trips. Like, if it's a quick road trip... And I would define that as six hours or less, <laughs> not Cracker Barrel. If I'm on a multi-day trip or even like a 12-hour trip, Cracker Barrel is a very appealing option. You do the quick drive through Wendy's for lunch and then the sit-down dinner at a Cracker Barrel. I make no apologies for that. And then you make amends for it the next day at the gym, ideally. Last story here very quickly before we go. I also happen to notice... There was another Wall Street Journal story brought to our attention by a nameless team member here at the show that is applying 
French onion soup tastes to all sorts of other foods. The headline is French onion everything. This season's most soothing recipes. And there's a way you can apply the taste profiles, if you will, of French onion soup to a host of other foods. And Christine, I know that this is not appealing to you because you hate French onion soup, but it was another opportunity for me to remind you, as we did on Friday, that you still need to eat French onion soup on the air because you lost a bet. And I'm wondering, in fact, maybe we can go to the judges on this one. And by the judges, I mean War Wyatt. Could she consume a French onion soup flavored something else to have it count as paying off the bet? Or does it have to be the extremely hot soup with the onions in there and the melted cheese and the bread? I think we could do a flavored something, maybe like a flavored donut or jelly bean. Okay. I will take that under advisement. And Christine, we will get back to you on this, but it's going to happen. Back here tomorrow for the Guy Benson Show. I'm supposed to be on Outnumbered tomorrow at noon Eastern, but there are Supreme Court hearings, so we'll see how that goes. Just tune in maybe one way or another. Plus, back here on the radio for sure, 3 to 6 Eastern every weekday. It's the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. Have a great night. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.